Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. Hi, welcome to Tax Tuesday. I am not Toby Mathis. He's not here today. Instead, we have Elliot Thomas with us. He's one of our, he is our senior tax advisor right now. And I'm Jeff Webb. I am a CPA here at Anderson. And this is Tax Tuesday, bringing the tax knowledge to the masses. You can ask live questions uh, and we will answer them as we go. We have on board Tavia answering your bookkeeping questions, Dana Christos Pio answering questions, and Patty helping out with chat and questions. You can send your questions to Tax Tuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com and we will get to them as we can. We get a lot of questions in. We pick ones that we, we do live and try to answer the others as we go. Uh, if you do need a detailed response, you need to become a platinum or a tax client with Anderson. And by detailed response, we're mainly talking about where it's a lot of detail particular to your situation that may not apply to people who are in this group. This is fast, fun, and educational. We love to do the education and give back to everybody. Uh, personally, I, I have smarter clients or better clients. I know Toby likes to ask where you all are from. I'm not going to ask because then our chat spins for the next five minutes while everybody answers. But we do appreciate you all joining us. I know you're from all over the place, and that's great. Uh, we're starting to get questions come in on the question side. If you do have a question, make sure you're asking it in the question side and not the chat side. If you ask a tax question on the chat side, it's likely not to get answered, but it will get answered on the question side. So let's get into our questions. Our opening questions, if you experience a one-time large capital gain from exercising stock options, is it absolutely necessary, or actually says absolutely imperative, that you figure out quarterly payments to avoid penalties? And if so, by April 5th, what happens if you miss by April? We'll talk about that. What is the best way to take advantage of Section 179? on new vehicles over 6,000 pounds. We'll talk about that. How are cryptocurrencies taxed? And what's the best way to legally, morally, and ethically not pay taxes? We'll try to fit in all three. I have two LLCs right now, one holding real estate and the other a farming business. As a single member LLCs that seem to have some tax benefits, my question is, could I move the equipment from one LLC to the other entity and then lease it back to the first company, to the custom operating company, thus creating some additional deductions? Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that and what benefits there may be. My vision's not the greatest, so I'm a little slow. Read the questions. I apologize. Read this next one. I am rolling out of an employer DB defined benefit plan uh, where I had employees in the past. And what to set up a solo 401k? Is there a restriction, three-year waiting period to do this? My administrator says there is. Next, if I currently have a 12-unit apartment building with a mortgage and I sell a single-family uh, house rental property, can I use the proceeds from the sale of the single-family rental property to pay off the mortgage of the 12-unit building to avoid capital gains tax? Next, we have uh, what will happen if you open a 
an LLC with a C, or with a corporate, excuse me, with a corp status, but you missed the deadline. What should you do? And then uh, number six, how do you depreciate rental property after one of the owners dies? Number seven, how do I set up my company in Nevada when I will be conducting business in Texas? Does tax on depreciation recapture, like capital gains, go away when the property is inherited? Number nine, do I have a do I have to report a home I lived in and sold even though I purchased a new home? And we'll get into the questions now. Thanks, Elliot, for doing that. If you experience a one-time large capital gain from exercising stock options, is it absolutely imperative that you figure out quarterly payments to avoid penalty? And if what happens if you missed April, meaning the April estimate? So what happens there is there is a safe harbor for estimated taxes. And that's primarily what we're talking about, calculating the estimates. The safe harbor says that you have to pay in at least 90% of the current year tax. So if these were exercised in 2021, they would have to put in 90% of the current year tax or 110% of the prior year tax. So let's say that your normal income is $100,000, but you have this an additional $100,000 of capital gain from exercising these stock options. What you could do then is base your tax on the prior year, base your estimates on the prior year, pay them in. But when April 15th comes in 2022, you would need to make sure that all your tax was paid in. So it's not necessarily imperative, but it might be a good idea. You know, if you had a bump uh, quarter, I think we had a whole lot, you might want to pay some of that tax there just so you don't have to worry about it later on, but you don't necessarily have to as long as it's done by the end of the year, I guess. Is, uh, yeah, yeah you, you make a good point that you need to, even if you don't have to make the payments now, like I, I talk about my mother and her farm. Uh, she's selling the farm. She's going to have a huge tax bill, but she's not going to have to make any estimated payments in the year of the sale because in 2020, her net income was maybe $30,000. So it just has to make the liability from the previous year. Correct. Now, come April 15th, she's going to have a huge tax bill. I'm going to give the poor woman a stroke. I'm going to have her write out the check, and that'll be all wild. But, but that's kind of the way it's working. But not having to pay a lot of tax right now is, isn't because you're her son, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and that's true. So, yeah, you're going to, you may owe a lot of money on those capital gains, but you may not have to pay for them right now. And we're usually of the position that it's better for you to hold your money than give it to loan it to the government sooner yeah. than you have to. Yeah, we have a lot of investors who do a lot better holding on that, paying a little bit of penalty or something like that, because they're good at what they do and they will make more money. Caveat to that, the opposite side of that, some aren't. <laughs> yeah, I, and sometimes the estimated tax penalties are not that significant, well, depending on how much you owe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you miss a payment, it's not a big deal. Make that payment as soon as you can. Uh, they're actually counting days when they're figuring the penalties. So if you miss the April 15th payment, if you make it by May 15th or now then the May, you're going to have a little penalty on that, but it's not going to be huge. That's basically based on, was it half of one, per, one half of 1%? Yes. We'll just say yes. For simplicity, <laughs> call it yes. <laughs> Next question. What is the best way to take advantage of Section 179 for new vehicles over 6,000 pounds? Uh, you go ahead and give your first reaction right. to this. Whenever I see 179 here in the last year or two, I can't even remember 179 for a second because nobody uses it. 
Uh, the reason why is because right now we have bonus depreciation. There's no sense to using 179. 179 actually has restrictions to it where you can only use your depreciation or any uh, 179 expense up to the amount of profit that you have. <clears throat> and there's other limitations as well. So we really deal with bonus depreciation, which says if I get that vehicle that makes that 6,000 pounds and it qualifies SUV, what have you, then you can take that immediate 100% and uh, you don't have to worry about it. You can create a loss from that and that can offset other ordinary income on your return. So let's talk a little bit about how this the 6,000 pound rule applies to bonus depreciation. The rules for 179 and bonus are pretty much the same as far as whether a vehicle qualifies or not. So both for passenger vehicles like sedans, coupes, your basic passenger vehicle, and other vehicles, the rule says if it exceeds 6,000 pounds, it can, you can take bonus depreciation on it. However, the sedans, sedans and coupes have a different rule from the SUVs, trucks, and vans. When we're talking SUVs, trucks, and vans, we're talking gross vehicle weight rating, GVWR, which means the loaded capacity of that vehicle, typically. So I'll give you an example. Uh, well, let me, let me tell you the other side. Sedans and coupes are what's called unloaded weight, or what you may hear as curbside or curb weight. It does include fuel, but it does include passengers or cargo or anything like that. So you take something, we'll take like a Bentley Continental, which costs well over, it's a six-figure vehicle. If it could use that GVWR, it is over 6,000 pounds. But, but since, since it's a sedan, <laughs> it has to use the curb weight, which is more like under 5,000 pounds. So by having this little rule, they tend to rule out sedans and passenger vehicles, what we call cars. You see a lot of the SUVs, if they have any size to them at all. I think um, I have a Hyundai Santa Fe. I think that qualifies. All of the domestic full-size pickup trucks qualify. It's pretty easy to look up to see if a vehicle qualifies or not. But we, you just have to differentiate between the car and or what type of vehicle it is. Once it gets over 14,000 pounds and there's some other specific rules and there's different rules and that now it's a heavy vehicle, it's, it's no longer qualifies this way, but it could still qualify otherwise. All that being said is once again, that bonus depreciation could be taken against, you can take a loss with bonus depreciation. Exactly. Section 179, you take that and let's say your income is $1,000. Yeah, we just wasted 179 on it when you could have just done bonus depreciation, gotten a heavy loss and offset other income on your return. Yeah, and that's really important, especially in these pass-through entities or Schedule Cs that uh, you want that loss to pass through. You don't want it suspended until you someday make a profit and can take that. Yeah, you never know if that's coming, that profit or not. One other quick thing you got need to remember is both 179 and bonus, we're mainly talking about 100% business use. Once you start using it for less than 100% business, you get less and less of a deduction out of it. And you might have some uh, ordinary income, depending on if it's titled in the name of the business, which it might be. This is a link to, oh, IIW. This is our Infinity West uh, Investing Workshop. Uh, that's ABA.link, I, I, backslash, forward slash, I don't know what it is. I'm always told I'm wrong. <laughs> IIW, I believe it's this Saturday. Oh, okay, yeah, we, I know they have a lot of them. <laughs> um, 
June 5th, not June 5th. Thanks, Patty. So yeah, please please feel free to attend this. I think the registration is at this link. We are going to skip the questions and answers and keep moving on. Uh, How are cryptocurrencies taxed? And what is the best way to legally, morally, and ethically not pay taxes? We've talked about this in the past, and it really depends on how you're getting the cryptocurrency. If you're buying and selling, it's treated like a security. If I buy it for 100 and sell it for 150, then I have a $50 capital gain. Short-term and long-term rules apply. So if I hold it, if I buy crypto today at 100, sell it a year from now at 150, I have a long-term capital gain of $50. Most people don't hold crypto that long. They go in and out. It's mostly short-term. They didn't hold it this weekend. (laughs) No. (laughs) If you are mining it, then the day it's created, you need to find out what the value of that current coin is, that crypto is. So like if I had mined it a month ago, it was worth approximately $60,000 of Bitcoin. I would have ordinary income of the price of that coin when it was created. So let's say I created the $60,000 Bitcoin. I turn around and sell it when it's at $65,000. I now have $60,000 of ordinary income and $5,000 of capital gain. Now, here's the problem with the recent market. If I created that coin at $60,000, Bitcoin's selling for about, what, 35? It's in the 30s somewhere. Let's say it's at 35. I now have a $25,000 capital loss. So I still get taxed on that original $60,000 for creating the coin. But now I have a capital loss. And if that's the only capital gain or loss I have, that's limited to $3,000 of loss each year. So that that's something you have to consider. Now, what is the best way to legally, morally, and ethically not pay taxes? Well, we, we go back to our normal tools of offsetting capital gains. When you're mining coins, you can offset it with the cost of producing the coin. You're going to have some substantial electric bills. You're going to have other ordinary costs incurred from producing that coin that you can use to offset the income from that coin. But when we're talking about the capital gain side of it, then you're starting to look at, do I have any losses, unrecognized losses that I can go ahead and recognize? I can sell something and create a, uh, a loss to offset my gain. And on the, the earning of it, the, the, the uh, mining of it, which is going to be ordinary income, if we start there, if you knew you're going to start this project, you might want to do it in a corporation, maybe an S corporation, where you can get some tax advantage you know, through reimbursements and things like that, corporate meetings, so on and so forth. Get a little bit of a break there, then you know, you'll be able to get your capital gains. Then we look for things uh, you know, later on you can trade in, that'd be like our trading structure, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, for capital gains. And uh, still off, offset some uh, income. Set it up as a partnership, put your interest, your your capital gain, crypto in there. Uh, maybe push off uh, a certain percentage or something like that to a C corporation, uh, where the rest would go to you uh, individually. And again, more corporate uh, deductions there, perhaps. Most of these are going to be short-term capital gains. We're, we haven't held the uh, crypto for a year. So it's going to be taxed at our normal rate, whatever our ordinary rate is. So then we really have to kind of work on what's our plan to reduce our tax load. Sometimes one of the people I work with bought a lot of stock at the beginning of the COVID downturn. 
and he's been sweating it, trying to hold it for a year. Yeah, well, <laughs> sweating more now. <laughs> so it's partially a timing issue. Congress has taken away a lot of our tools, investment deductions, things like that within the individual return on the 1040. Right. So then we have to do what you were talking about. Maybe we need to look at a trading partnership that has a corporation involved. Then the corporation can deduct certain things that the individual couldn't do. Correct. And, and you're getting that a portion of your income off your 1040 that way a little bit. And like Jeff points out, if it's ordinary short-term capital gains rates, well, that's ordinary rates. So effectively you're you're taking you're at the highest tax bracket you're going to get taxed at so taking a little bit off getting it into a corporation might cut you some slack even if you didn't sell it uh you know or later didn't sell it right now that's 21 percent at the c-corp level so you're getting a, a little bit of a break there so there are things that can be done and we don't have to worry about morals here or ethics <laughs> makes it bad. but it is legal some people out in the internet world are still talking about well i can exchange my Bitcoin for Zcash or one of the other cryptocurrencies. No, you can't do that. That is not a like kind of exchange. There is no such thing. It would be like trying to exchange your PNG stock for Kroger stock and not recognizing gain. It doesn't work. I have two LLCs right now, one holding uh, real estate, the other being a farming business as a single, as single member LLCs that seem to have some tax benefits. My question is, could I move the equipment into another entity and lease it to the custom operating company, thus creating some additional deductions? Good question. Now, go ahead and give me your thoughts on this. <laughs> well, really, I guess you say they're single member LLC, so I'm going to assume that means they're disregarded. That may not be the case, but we'll go with that. And if we take some some equipment out and try and lease it around, Remember, that's, you just incurred additional income within what I call your macro economy. You didn't earn more money from to leasing it to me or Jeff. It's within your own business. So you just created more income or taxable income. I don't like that. And maybe even if you get an offset deduction against it, perhaps uh, you know, at the federal level, you're not going to at the state level, who's typically going to tax you that. So I don't think the uh, leasing is something that you want to do with the equipment. I'll give you a couple of scenarios why this doesn't work. Let's say you have a tractor in your farming business. I believe that's seven-year property. Anyway, you've let's say that tractor is fully depreciated. You're still using the tractor. If you move that into another entity and then lease it back to the farming business, you're actually not accompanying or accomplishing anything. You're creating a deduction on the farm side, but you're also creating income on the other side. They're offsetting each other. This would also not be considered a passive business. So you couldn't generate passive income in this leasing entity because you're leasing to your own business. So you couldn't use it to offset other losses. The other problem is, is if it's fully depreciated in the farming business and you transfer it to the other entity, there's nothing to depreciate. You can't start depreciating it all over again unless you sell it to the other business. Okay, so yeah, you just recognize gains on that. And, that, and that's exactly right. The farming business now has a gain on the sale, which is going to take at least five years. Well, no, it'll be less than that with bonus depreciation, but... But if you sell it again afterwards, you know, you have to worry about depreciation recapture too if you later on lose it. Now, let's, let's go a different route. I have a farming business. I need a, I need a new corn planter. I may want to 
purchase that and the other LLC and then lease it to the farm. The entity that purchases it gets to take the depreciation, gets rent from the farming business. And one thing this does, and you'll see it not only in the farming, but in other businesses, that if I have my equipment, especially my expense equipment, in a separate LLC, I'm now protecting my equipment and my business from each other. So that's something I often see. I see it in uh, assisted living, residential assisted living, that the property and even some of the equipment may be in this entity, but the operations are actually in this entity. And that's basically to make sure you don't lose your shirt on everything should something go wrong. Yeah, Clint has some really good examples of that when he presents, talking about a business, I believe it's his brother has, uh, keeping equipment out. And I think he does road repair or something like Mm -hmm. that. I don't remember what it is exactly, but Clint often talks about that. And that is something that we're used to. But like Jeff points out, that's if we have brand new equipment. Maybe we don't want to do that if we've had equipment for a bit, perhaps, you know, but, and also Jeff was talking about, you know, this is going to be ordinary income. You might have employment taxes if it's a disregard, you know, Schedule C. So ultimately you probably want to sit down and have a consultation and review everything. Right. Use that answer. (laughs) (laughs) Ask your tax professional. Moving on, I'm rolling out of an employer DB plan where I had employees in the past, and I want to set up solo 401k. Is there a restriction three-year waiting period to do this? My administrator says so. I know if you set up a 401, if you terminate a 401k plan, which is not a DB plan, then for at least 12 months after that, you cannot form another 401k plan. And it's all about discrimination rules. These are mainly ERISA rules. I'm not sure about the DB plan, but I could see something similar applying there. It's mainly to keep you from cutting people out of your plan. Yeah, even if the employees are gone. And we researched this quite a bit, uh, try and get more information about it. It's not a lot out there. It is not uncommon that DB plans do get turned over, and uh, but they're you know uh, you're going to have to abide by all the rules, and there probably is some kind of restriction there. So it, it seems very reasonable. I don't know if it's three years. I can't tell you that, but I would think there'd be some kind of holding there because you did have employees in the past, and they want to make sure that those employees, their rights are represented. So when you terminate a, a defined contribution plan, which is a 401k or a 403b or 457, certain things happen. If you have a vesting schedule, that vesting schedule goes away and everybody is immediately invested in in that plan for any profit sharing contributions you put in. Uh, And there are a few other things that happen uh, when you terminate a plan. It's still usually fairly easy to do, to terminate that plan, pay it out and, and move on. Not so easy with the DB plan. You have to be really cautious about terminating a defined benefit plan. Because the way the defined benefit plan works is you're setting up a retirement plan that is guaranteeing that you will pay out benefits at a certain time. Now, you've seen where they could possibly, what's the word, not convert, but... Yeah, it is a conversion. Yeah, I've seen some things where they talk about the conversion of it. I can't give you too much detail into it. Really, it's going to be dependent not only by the rules of ERISA, but by your plan sponsor, uh, administrator, you know, mm-hmm. so the plan. They're going to... Have, and they have very detailed rules in there that may, even though the law says you can, the original agreed upon agreement may not. Now, here's the problem with that as far as this question goes. You cannot do that conversion and make it a solo 401k. 
your employees would automatically be brought into that also. So part of the problem with terminating that DB plan, I'm assuming that's what you mean by rolling out of it, is that you're terminating the plan is settling up with the employees. ERISA could get involved. The um, I can't think of the name of the entity, the government entity that oversees the Department plan. of Labor. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, and, and there will be actuarial calculations because on that conversion, you have a set amount that the employee, the past employees are entitled to. Now, if they're going to have rights in this new 401k, that has to be, you know, I don't know, accounted for. Uh, and that's a complex calculation. So, not saying you shouldn't do it, but there probably is some waiting periods in there. I would imagine that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. So, if this was a solo defined benefit plan where just maybe you and your spouse were participating in it, it would be a lot less tedious to shut down. But since you have outside employees, unrelated employees in the DB plan, you have certain obligations you have to meet to them. I would probably listen pretty closely to your administrator. It doesn't hurt to check around. I will say we could not find anything definitive on this, but it kind of makes sense. Should we leave it at that? Yeah. If I currently have a 12-unit apartment building with a mortgage and I sell a single-family home rental property, can I use the proceeds from the sale of the, the rental property, the single family, uh, to pay off the mortgage on the 12-unit apartment building to avoid capital gains tax? See, when I read this the first time, I got down to almost the last line and I thought I knew the direction this was going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then it kind of made a turn on me. So you absolutely, first off, can use your proceeds from the sale of your uh, 12-unit building for anything you want. I think paying down your mortgage is a great idea. However, it doesn't avoid capital gains tax. In the old days when you sold your home, as long as you bought something more expensive, then you could defer that. And I think that might be one of the later questions. Yeah, that's one of them we got to the end. We'll, we'll skip but, that then. This is a rental, so. But yeah, if you have capital gains tax and possibly unrecaptured uh, depreciation, then you're going to have to pay the tax on that. The upside of this is you may also have suspended losses in this apartment building. I guess technically they, they they don't offset each other. If you have losses that you've built up over the years, you're losing $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 a year, and those losses are being suspended every year. Uh, as soon as you sell this building, any suspended losses are going to get released. Yeah, passive losses. So they can more or less offset that capital gain. The other thing that happens is when you sell something like an apartment building that you've been depreciating, any capital gain you have is considered a passive capital gain. So if you're having, if you have suspended passive losses and other things, you can actually, so for, for example, you sold your single family home rental property. If you have losses that were in the, the apartment building, and I kind of said this backwards before, any gain that you have in that, that single family home can offset losses that are in that suspended in that uh, apartment building. Yeah. You want to straighten out what I said? No, that's exactly right. Yeah. So if you sell, you know, if you've built up PALS, passive activity losses over the years, and you sell one unit, that kind of, we call it releasing the PALS, they come running out and you can use those to offset a lot of your capital gains. And that's not going to get rid of our depreciation recapture. If we still have remaining capital gains, that's still going to pile on top first. But 
you know, it will reduce a lot of it potentially. And if you got rid of all the capital gains, well then, yeah, you wouldn't have any cap depreciation recapture because of most capital gains. So, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes Toby has to translate for me. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> yeah, this is something if we could sit down, you know, and look at all the numbers and all that, we could give you an idea of really kind of dial in how much you'd be looking at and saving all over. Yeah. You may not have as much capital gain as you think you have, uh, especially if you have those passive losses that are just sitting there waiting to be released into the wild. But yeah, that is something to look at. One other quick thing is if I take my proceeds from my sale, my single family home and pay down my mortgage, that's also going to make your income higher simply because you're going to have less interest on the mortgage uh, coming from the mortgage. You're going to have less interest expense. That's true. Less deduction there. Usually not a big deal, but I think I would rather have less mortgage. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Not worry about the interest deduction. <laughs> I'm a fan of no debt. <laughs> All right. Moving on. You can follow Anderson on social media. You can see all the different kinds. We have Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. Please follow us. There's a lot of good info out there. Not only the Tax Tuesday stuff, but Clint and Toby both put out a ton of content that is helpful. So uh, please follow us. It's aba.link forward slash whatever one you choose. Yeah. A lot of options. What will happen if you open an LLC with corp status, but you miss the deadline? What should you do? Now, I'm guessing they're talking about the deadline for filing your tax return. Yeah, I wasn't sure on this one. If it was that or the deadline for declaring it as a corp status, uh, but probably the tax deadline. So if you miss the tax deadline, if you have a loss on your corp, it typically doesn't hurt you. Uh, If you have a lot of startup costs, Oh, we need to talk because we need to look at whether or not you've started business. The reason I say this is startup costs have to be, there's an election to make of how you're going to report those startup costs. And it has to be made on a timely filed first year of business return. So we can work with that in certain cases, but we do want to get that filed on time if it's an initial return. If you don't owe any money on tax, you're not going to have any penalties for a late filed return. Let's say you do owe and you miss the deadline. You want to get that filed as soon as possible, even if you can't pay it right this minute. you got to get that return filed. The penalties for late filed returns are substantial. They're, I believe, 5% a month, up to 25% of what you owe with that return. And I'd be more worried, you know, we're just we're kind of giving this answer from the idea of a corp, maybe a C corp. But if it's an S corporation, we have a whole nother round of problems for being late. Yeah. Uh, there's going to be a penalty per shareholder or LLC unit member. Uh, per month. Per month. What is it, 200? 205, I 20, believe. 205 uh, a month for each of them per month that you're late. So it adds up fast. IRS likes to see your pass-through entities. That's your partnerships, your S-corporations. They want to get those out because they have to have those K-1s out to do 1040s. So they really punish you for being late on that. So what do we do? Get it in as fast as you can, number one. Number two, Maybe an abatement letter. I don't know. In my yeah, if, not. if this is your first time misbehaving, they usually give you a, a pass. We just have to call IRS or somebody has to call IRS and beg forgiveness. And it usually goes away if it's your first time with this entity, this particular entity doing something like that. Especially if Jeff signs the letter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at that pull. I, I don't think this is part of the question, but I'm going to bring it up. What if you're late 
of uh, filing with a secretary of state or something like that, uh, your annual registration, you want to make sure you get that taken care of because a lot of the states, the secretary of state can disband your entity and you really don't want that happening. It can be cured, but it's kind of a pain. They make you jump through a lot of hoops and could be costly. It could be costly. Yeah. yeah. They'd like a little flush with that uh, Mm -hmm. late, late filing. Let you know who's boss. (laughs) Next question. How do you depreciate a rental property after one of the owners die? Ellie and I talked about this for a little (laughs) bit. And there's different scenarios. So we'll start with the simplest one. I have a rental property. Only my name is on it. I die and leave it to my wife. She gets the property at the current fair market value on my date of death. And if she continues to rent that property, she gets to depreciate it all over again. Anything that happened before I died no longer exists. So once it is in her hands, she can continue to rent it. She depreciates the fair market value rather than what was in my hands. Kind of like she just bought the property. So you could have done while you both had it. You could have done maybe a cost segregation if it was a newer property, gotten all that benefit. Mm -hmm. And then you pass, give it to her, and she could do turn around and do another one. We do like the cost segregation. Right? Look at that. I hadn't thought about that one. Pays to die, right? (laughs) Occasionally, if you're the one left. (laughs) (laughs) Now, let's say the property was in a partnership. Me and Elliot are in a partnership. Again, I die. I seem to be doing that a lot. (laughs) And my wife, once again, inherits it. My interest in the partnership. So Elliot's still a partner. But now my wife has replaced me as a partner. She gets what is called a 754 or 704. I think they kind of work together, or 743. Anyway, all you need to know is she gets a stepped-up basis on her share of the property. So let's say uh, we had a $400,000 property between the two of us, and that was our cost. I suddenly die, and it's now worth $500,000. So there's $100,000 of additional fair market value in that property. If I own half of it, and now my wife owns half of it, she gets a step up in half of that increase in basis. So we said from $400,000, what we paid for, it's now worth a half a million. So she gets a step up of the difference, the $100,000, half of that, she gets a step up of $50,000. And then she gets to start depreciating that inside the partnership. And only she participates in that depreciation. So um, Elliot would continue to depreciate his share of the $400,000. She'd get her share of of the depreciated $400,000 plus that little extra $50,000 piece. There are other situations, if it's an S corporation or a C corporation, those entities actually own the property. So if we're in an S corporation together and I die, nothing really changes just because we bring a new owner in. The rule about the step up in the 754, that is particular to partnerships. So like if every time somebody died, would Amazon get a, somebody get a step up in Amazon? Right. It doesn't work like that. So we have rules for partnerships. We have rules for individually held properties. And then we have everything else. All right. Infinity and investing. This is a great book. I'll be frank. It's not about getting rich quick. It's about investing properly to the point where you can't spend your money fast enough from what you're bringing in. It's talking about doing it the smart way, not the get rich quick way. 
Toby, if you're listening to this and I'm misrepresenting your book, I'm sorry, but this is the way I see it. They really preach about uh, dividend in earning uh, stocks and things like that, uh, investing in real estate, basically the things that we see other people do and do well. And we're trying to present it to you in Toby's book, Infinity Investing. It is still doing really great on Amazon. And uh, Patty, how do they get this book? I just posted the link actually in chat. She just posted the link. I see it. But yeah, it's a good read. It's it, it's it's not a hard and long read. This is also in conjunction with our Infinity Investing Workshop. We talk about a lot of this. And I encourage you, if you have not already ordered, to please do so. Toby would like you to, if you've bought the book, to leave a review, good or bad. He, he just wants people's thoughts on the books. Next question. How do I set up my company in Nevada when I will be conducting business in Texas? What do you say? You know, it's going to kind of depend on some facts here. What kind of business, what, how is it going to be taxed and things like that, nature of the business being conducted in it. But if we're just talking in general, any kind of ordinary business and you really wanted to have it somehow set up in, in, in Nevada, you would probably have a Texas entity, maybe a disregarded LLC that is disregarded to a Nevada perhaps a holding company or something of that nature. Perhaps what you're looking for is like charging order protection or something like that. Very popular with Nevada. Might want to think Wyoming if that's if we have no other reason to be in Nevada, just because it's a little bit cheaper. Both states, incredibly good at asset protection for small business. But more than likely, that would be it. Work with a, a disregarded entity in Texas and then have it owned up. Or, or it could, I'm sorry, it could be an S corporation, just have the shares or, or a C corp have the shares owned by the Nevada holding as well. Maybe that would probably be the best route, I guess, uh, taking back on the, my first comment there. So yeah, probably have a C corporation or S corporation in Texas, have the units or the shares, depending on if it's a, uh, a corporation or LC owned by a, a Nevada holding. And um, then you just run your business. So we know Nevada, or I'm sorry, Texas does not have an individual income tax. Uh, they do have a franchise tax, which kicks in at what, $4 million? Or am I wrong? Yeah, last time it was a million, but it's okay. up there. It's up there. Yeah. So it's pretty high. So if I'm only conducting business in Texas, that's all I'm doing. And let's say I live in Texas anyway. Mm-hmm. Am I making a mistake by forming an entity? in Texas and not running it through Nevada? Well, you're going to get taxed in Texas because your business is operating, you're conducting your, you know, here in Texas. So that's Texas income more than likely. And then we get back to the original, you know, what kind of business are we operating? You know, is mm-hmm. it operating dead, you know, or not a bad term there, but uh, directly in Texas is what I'm trying to say. Uh, then you have Texas income. So either way, you're going to have to pay some kind of fee to Texas and you're going to need to be set up in Texas for asset protection purposes, I would think. So let me ask a different question then. So let's say I'm operating a business in Texas, but I'm also operating in Oklahoma, Arkansas, and maybe Louisiana. Does that make even more sense to do the Nevada parent? It can, if we can kind of maybe argue that our operations are out of Nevada, and then, you know, we we are present in these other, excuse me, other states, uh, then we can set up entities in there so we have a presence there if we feel we need to. And that will just kind of get on the type of business that's being operated, et cetera. No matter what here, you're going to want to talk to one of our business advisors or one of our platinum attorneys so you, to, you know, to see what exactly your fact pattern is. Uh, so there are some, there's some flexibility here, different ways we could do it. But those are just some examples. 
Great. Does tax on depreciation recapture, like capital gains, go away when the property is inherited, like we were just talking about? No, that sounds familiar. Yeah. (laughs) So, yes, when you inherit a property, everything goes away. Everything resets. Same thing, let's say, we'll we'll start with a basic. Uh, I inherit my mother's Norfolk Southern stock. She may have paid $100 for it, but it's now worth close to $300 a share. All that capital gain goes away. Now let's move on to something like a rental property. She owns a house that she's renting out, been renting out for 30 years, so it is fully depreciated. She has no basis in that home, but the fair market value is $200,000. So I inherit that property. Nobody pays that depreciation recapture, not not her, not her estate, not me. So I now have a house that's worth $200,000. It doesn't matter that she's fully depreciated it. And remember, we're only talking inheritances. If we ever talk gifts in the same fashion, all of that goes away. So let's say I have a rental property that's partially depreciated. I gift it to Elliot. Okay, I'll gift it to you anyway. (laughs) Thank you, Mike. (laughs) I gift it to Elliot. He takes over that property. He doesn't pay any tax on it. If anybody's going to pay tax on it, it may be me, but I will have to have gone through my $11 million of uh, excluded uh, gifts first. So Elliot takes over the property. He steps into my shoes, meaning my basis is now his basis. My depreciation that I've already taken is his depreciation. He takes the property and a gift exactly the way I held it at the time I gifted it to him. So a lot of taxes if I ever sell, and I will have depreciation recapture then if I ever sold, and less to depreciate. Do I have to report a home? Oh, this is our last one. I lived in and sold even though I purchased a new home. We hear this question more often than you think we would. Up until 1995 or 96, the old Section 121 rule said, As long as I buy a home that's more expensive than the one I sold, I can defer any gain until I believe I was 55. I think when I was 55, all that gain would go away. They replaced that rule in the mid-90s with a new Section 121 rule that says, if you've lived in that home for two of the last five years, you can defer up to either $250,000 or $500,000 in gain, depending on your marital status. So to answer your question... No, just because you purchase a new home, that doesn't qualify you to defer that gain or to avoid that gain. You're still going to have gain. Now, if you've lived there in two of the last five years, you may be able to defer a large part, if not all of your gain, depending on how much gain you have. Of course, the longer we've lived in that home, the more gain we're likely going to have. Uh, House that you may pay $30,000 for years ago may be worth 10 times that amount. So you're certainly going to have to report it no matter what. It's You're not going to have any taxable gain, perhaps, like Jeff's talking about. One thing that we do run into a lot with our nature of a lot of our clients being real estate investors, maybe you rented it out first for some period of time, then you moved into it, made it your personal residence, so you qualify for 121. But because you had that non-conforming use, is the term they use, of where you rented it out prior you may lose a fraction of your your uh, exclusion on the two hundred fifty or five hundred thousand exclusion. So uh, might be you know yeah we have to break out the calculator and do some calculations to see exactly what happens on that. But oddly enough, 
they don't punish you or take away that if you lived in it, made your home for two years and you rent it out for like a year or two and then sell it, you don't have to have, can consider that non-conforming use, which is, I, I still have not been able to stand their logic for that, but it's good uh, for the taxpayer. So you'd be able to do the full 500000 or two fifty, whatever you're entitled to. Sometimes we're trying not to understand the why. And just... Probably, yeah, just live with it. You know, that's what it says. <laughs> Let's take it. But yeah, a lot of people can exclude most, if not all, of their gain through the new, newer Section 121 exclusion. But whether or not you buy a new property or the side to rent has no bearing anymore on the gain or loss. And then we do have another technique if you wanted to keep that home. Whereas if, it, if you'd seen, this works a lot if you had a lot of value, appreciation value in it. Uh, Clint has a video on this where maybe you sell it to your own S corporation. Purpose of that, you can go ahead, as long as you've had it as your personal residence and then you sell it to your S corp, you can go ahead and rent it out. You can use the deferral still of 250 or 500,000. If you take all the, you, you choose, you elect to take the capital gains right away. Mm-hmm. And then uh, your S corporation can make payments uh, over time to pay you back an installment. You've paid your taxes on it. And the S corporation's now renting it out at the stepped up basis that we keep talking right. about. And so now you've got a, a much larger amount to depreciate, maybe hit up a cost segregation, have some losses come through, might help you out later on in your return. I, re- I really like that idea. If you have a house that you've lived in, qualify for the two out of five years deduction, and then you want, you want to keep it and rent it out. And I need to clarify something here. When we say rent out the property, we mean to, to somebody that's not you. You cannot sell your house to your S corporation, rent it back, and still live there. That doesn't work. Keep with non-related parties. Non-related parties, yes. And then do we? you can even do a like kind of exchange, though. Yeah, you can do the 1031 as well. If you have, again, if you've made that time to live in it under 121, yeah, then yeah, then you have a business use of it. But the business use in this case would have to have come out at the end. You have to be currently using it for a business pur- purpose, meaning renting it, in order to do the 1031 in combination with 121. This is a really nice strategy. Uh, it does work. IRS has approved this. But make sure you're talking to somebody before you just do it. It's fairly easy to do it wrong if you don't take the right steps. It's kind of like the 1031 exchange, the like kind of exchange. Sounds easy, but it's really easy to screw up. So you just want to have a little guidance. It's worth paying for that guidance, whether it's us or your local CPA or somebody who who is aware of the strategy to save you quite a bit of money in taxes. And my mother asks the same question. I bring her up a lot. (laughs) She thought she could still do this. And no, mom, sorry. I think that was our last one. All right. Well, we have uh, had a lot of questions answered. It looks like uh, we got Christos and uh, Io. I think Dana's on there and uh, Tavia. Yeah, it looks like they've been flying uh, through those. 78 questions, just a few uh, open still. So, so subscribe to Anderson Advisors on YouTube for the newest updates at aba.link forward slash YouTube. And you can uh, see some of our podcasts at andersonadvisors.com forward slash podcast. And here's some of our podcasts. You see the Tax Tuesday with me and Toby. Michael's content, Clint and Toby each put out a lot of content. Uh, We got Coffee with Carl. We have a lot of Tony Talks out there. All good stuff. We're, We're really putting this stuff out for everybody's benefit. 
and and the guys love doing it. I'll be frank. Oh, yeah. just, replays, replays will be in your platinum portal if you are a platinum member. They usually come out uh, the following week after Tax Tuesday, about a week from now. And if you have any questions, send them to Tax Tuesday at andersonadvisors.com or visit andersonadvisors.com. And we thank you for watching and being part of Tax Tuesday. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 